0: Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker.
1: Hi, I'm Alice Kanavos, and this is Political Theory 101.
0: So today on Political Theory 101, we're talking about Gandhi. I've wanted to do Gandhi for a long time. I really like Gandhi. He's probably my favorite anarchist. We don't do a lot of anarchists on Political Theory 101, but, you know, maybe we should do more. Uh, Certainly, I think we should do Gandhi, who I think is very straightforward and open and honest about what his kind of anarchism involves. Uh, Gandhi is, of course, a famous political leader who is involved in the Indian state's national myth. So you have to kind of separate the mythology around Gandhi and the use of Gandhi as a figure, as a founding father figure in uh, Indian nationalism from the actual work of Gandhi, what he actually says. For this session, you know, I gave Alex Hinswaraj to read Gandhi's 1908 Critique of Modern Civilization, uh, and but there are lots and lots of other texts Uh, mkgandhi.org has a huge, huge library of of texts uh, available for free to people. Gandhi wrote an autobiography, The Story of My Experiments with Truth, uh, that I read when I was in middle school. When I was, uh, I think I was 12 years old, I decided to do a book report on Gandhi's autobiography. I got all all enamored with Gandhi when I was a 12-year-old and so there's there's all sorts of stuff I want to talk about this week. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more freeform, a little looser than usual, because there's just a lot of stuff. Uh, so to start out, there are two key concepts in Gandhi's work that I think it's absolutely essential to understand. One is Swaraj, and the other is Satyagraha. Now, Swaraj can be translated as individual self-rule, or as collective home rule. Sometimes Gandhi uses it to talk about the individual, and sometimes he uses it to talk about the collective. Now, what are we talking about when we say self-rule? Well, when you're doing Swaraj for Gandhi, you're ruling yourself in accordance with truth. So you're ruling yourself in accordance with what you think is true, right? So if you think it's true that you shouldn't uh, have sex with everybody that you meet, or you think it's true that you shouldn't eat meat, or you think it's true that you shouldn't beat your wife, uh, then if you have the desire to do those things, you rule yourself on the basis of what you believe to be true, and you cause yourself to submit to the truth, right? Truth is a very important concept for Gandhi because truth is the thing that we are ultimately meant to be motivated by. And if we put anything ahead of truth, we're acting in an irreligious or satanic way, right? So Gandhi is kind of an inverse Hobbes, we teach uh, or, or uh, Gandhi is taught at Cambridge. Uh, and when I was at Cambridge uh, during my PhD, I used to teach Gandhi to students all the time. And I would always call him the anti-Hobbs because for Hobbes, you're always supposed to be afraid of death and you're supposed to put your survival ahead of everything else. In fact, for Hobbes, it's a natural law that you do this. It's It's what nature dictates that we do. Gandhi, It's completely the opposite. We are supposed to put truth ahead of everything else and we're supposed to risk even our survival for what we believe is true. Truth for Gandhi is often treated as equivalent to God or the good. Gandhi will often use these terms interchangeably. At what point Gandhi got into a, a letter, uh, a, d- a discussion through letters with an atheist? The atheist said, "I want to follow your, your way of doing things, but I don't believe in God. Is that is that possible? I think it is." And Gandhi initially was very skeptical of this guy, uh, but the guy convinced him that he did believe in in truth. And so, even though he didn't like to call truth God, he did believe in the concept that for Gandhi was important. So, Gandhi eventually was persuaded that you could be someone who doesn't like to use the concept God and subscribe to this view, provided that you like to use the concept of truth, that you think there is a difference between good and bad, true and false, right and wrong. So, Swaraj is is about taking control of yourself, ruling yourself on the basis of what you think is true, right? Once you're able to do that, then you've got self-control. Once you have self control, you can learn satyagraha. Satyagraha is the technique that Gandhi prescribes for getting other people to see things your way. The way satyagraha works, uh, it it literally translates to soul force or truth force. Gandhi framed soul force or truth forces as good translations. You'll sometimes see people say passive resistance or civil resistance or nonviolent resistance. But for Gandhi, truth force, was a particularly salient way of of putting it. And I think truth force is the best way to quickly in your head get at what satyagraha is. You're showing somebody the force of the truth. So if somebody demands that you do something that you think is wrong, you refuse to cooperate nonviolently. And through your non-cooperation, you demonstrate what the truth is. And if you're right, if you've properly understood the truth, then you're non-cooperation will have a moral effect. Now, that might mean that the person who's telling you what to do will be awed by your refusal to cooperate and will back off. Or it might mean that some third party, someone else watching, will see your defiance and be inspired by it, right? It might be that the person who's telling you what to do won't be convinced and will, in fact, discipline you with violence or beat you up or even shoot and kill you. But other people who are watching the situation will be moved by your display of non-cooperation. They'll realize that they have nothing to fear and ought to put the truth first as well. That's at least how this argument goes. Now, if you're going to be intimidated with violence or threatened with death, you need self-control to resist fear. Because if you're scared, then you're not going to be able to follow through on the satyagraha. If you get angry when somebody beats you up or doesn't uh, respond to your non-cooperation in the way that you'd like, then you're going to get violent and you're going to stop doing satyagraha and start just fighting. And for Gandhi, if you try to achieve change through violent means, this corrupts the end. Because if you're only able to get other people to cooperate with you by using force, then uh, as soon as as that force isn't there, everything melts away. And to preserve the force, to keep it going, you have to construct an entire society around violence and uh, around the deployment of force right this is very anarchist in this sense Uh, so you use satyagraha to show people the force of the truth people are then moved by that and for gandhi this was a strategy for getting india home rule for getting india independence from britain so if the indians refuse to cooperate with british rules that are not true that are bad or wrong Other Indians will see the Satyagrahis not cooperating. They will be moved by that non-cooperation, and they will be uh, moved by any kind of violence that the British use against the Satyagrahis. They will then join the movement. The movement will get larger, and eventually there will be so many people not cooperating with the British that they will have no choice but to grant the country independence. That's the theory, right? Now, there are other concepts of Gandhi's that are important and interesting too, like, for instance, Swadeshi. For Gandhi, Swadeshi is self reliance. India as a whole needed to have Swadeshi for Gandhi so that it was not dependent on importing luxury goods from Britain. Because if the Indians are dependent on British luxury goods, then the need for those luxury goods will cause them to structure their society around uh, trade and around economic growth and around being able to pay for those goods and that means they'll reproduce the same kind of society that you see in britain gandhi has a, a thoroughgoing critique of modern civilization for gandhi we have become obsessed with bodily comfort with trying to avoid death we've become very habesian right we're constantly motivated by fear and desire for comfort and this has caused us to neglect what's true in favor of what feels good or what helps us to uh, ameliorate our fear of other people of death and so gandhi argues that the whole industrial society subordinates the truth to whatever makes people comfortable whatever allows people uh, to to feel a sense of safety or security and that this means that nobody is able to act on the basis of what's true because everyone is constantly worried about what if we don't have the luxury goods that will make us comfortable? Or what if they use violence? What if there's war and we're not able to win the war because we don't have a competitive military? For Gandhi, these are not things that we ought to be concerned with. If a country invades you, you don't fight them back. You let them shoot you in displays of satyagraha until they themselves feel that what they're doing is wrong. And he recommends this even to the Jews during World War II, uh, victims of the Holocaust. He says that the thing to do is to refuse to cooperate and force the uh, violent person to do the violence. And ideally, to force them to do the violence in the open in public. So if, say, a set of Nazis come to your house... And they're g- going to try to carry you off. You refuse to go with them. You refuse to cooperate. You refuse to get on the train. You refuse to to get in the in the van. You uh, you say no. You force them to drag you out and use violence to make you go. You make sure everybody sees that this is happening. You make sure that everybody knows, uh, you know, in in the building, in the town, in the village, that they're having to use coercion to make you do this, right. So everybody's forced to confront the fact that it's happening. You don't quietly go. So some people frame uh, Gandhi as saying, oh, you know, that uh, the people being victimized by the Nazis should have just quietly gone to the gas chambers. Quite the contrary. They're supposed to refuse to cooperate with the Nazis at every stage, but nonviolently. So it's a a critique of the collaborator who goes along, right? But also it's a critique of, of the resistance fighter who uses violence against the regime. What Gandhi wants is non-cooperation, non-collaboration with non-violence, right? Now, does all of this work? Well, whether you think it works depends a lot on whether you agree with Gandhi about truth. Gandhi thinks that we all have a kind of internal notion, some kind of, of compass for truth, that when you show somebody the truth, there's some part of them. That's going to be made a little bit uneasy by it. Now, that doesn't mean that every time you do satyagraha, everyone will roll over and accept what you're doing. For one, you could be wrong about what's true. You could be doing satyagraha for the wrong reason because you've made a mistake. Gandhi experiments with truth. He tries different things. His beliefs and values vary over time, and he readily admits this. He says in the preface to uh, one of his books, uh, if there's anything in this book that contradicts anything I've said in previous books, go with this book because I'm you know, the most experienced in my experiments now. I've learned the most now and you ought to go with what I say here. Uh, but in the next book, go with what I say in the next book, right? So there's no worry in Gandhi about being consistent because we're supposed to constantly experiment with truth, constantly try to learn about it, right? Because of this, You you might be wrong. You might do satyagraha thinking that you're showing someone the force of the truth, but be making a mistake about the truth. And sometimes when you try to do satyagraha uh, and you're wrong, uh, somebody can do satyagraha back at you and you'll realize that it was a mistake for you to stand on this particular principle. Say, for instance, somebody's trying to build a wall and you don't think they should build that wall. So you uh, sit in front of where they want to build the wall and you refuse to move. And you hope that by sitting there, you'll persuade them uh, not to build the wall. Well, instead of having you forcibly removed, suppose that person sits in front of you with their wall building equipment, looking sad at you and forlorn about you know, how you know, and showing that they would like to build the wall and that you're frustrating something that matters to them. Right. You can have a little bit of a satyagraha face off. And if one of you is right, then at some point the other one's going to be moved. Or maybe while you're both sitting there, you'll realize that you're both wrong and come to some third conclusion. Right? That's, for Gandhi, how this is supposed to work. Because for Gandhi, having this prolonged period of, of doing satyagraha and not uh, seeing eye to eye is better than any kind of quick, coercive measure that would allow you to very quickly get where you're trying to go. For Gandhi, things that move fast are evil. And uh, in, in his Swaraj, he explicitly says that railroads are evil because anything that can move quickly is bad. <laughs> and the reason for this is that when you're moving quickly, you're not thinking about stuff. You're not really sitting with things and questioning, you know, is this really true? Is this really good? So there's a lot of... Uh, you know, sometimes I say you know, some political theorists view truth as translucent, some as transparent, some as opaque, some don't think it exists. For Gandhi, truth is very much in this kind of translucent category. It's not obvious to us what's true, but truth has to be accessible enough to us that we can get somewhere by doing satyagraha right if truth were opaque if we had no real sense for what it is or if there were no difference between true false good bad right wrong then satyagraha wouldn't work it is necessary because truth isn't transparent it's not obvious to us what's right but it works if it does work because truth is translucent because there is some level of ability that we all have to uh, spot it when we see it right so some critics of gandhi will say well truth isn't really that accessible or there is no such thing as truth in the first place if you say there's no such thing as truth in the first place then satyagraha is going to break down because we're not going to have that sense when someone does satyagraha that maybe they're right and we're wrong we're not going to have that intuition right it's important for gandhi that these intuitions do track something even if it's not precise even if it's not in such a way that you can give a dogma of what's true or a set of rules that stand for all time. We do have to have this kind of gut feeling that maybe, hmm, maybe we're right or, or we're wrong, or maybe they're right or wrong about what what's going on. Uh, conversely, if you think that truth is transparent, that it's obvious what's true and that there's a, a discrete set of rules that people need to follow, then you might think, well, if I just impose those rules through violence, it'll be fine. Right? So for Gandhi, the, Uh, extremists who just want to impose ancient traditional indian rules verbatim uh, without any room for debate uh, those people are not open to the need to experiment with truth conversely the people who don't think there is truth and think that we should instead be following bodily desires or or fear of death uh, those people for gandhi have a satanic attitude now gandhi doesn't blame those people for that attitude Gandhi is careful to say it's not the the fault of the British that they have this satanic civilization that's uninterested in truth. Nonetheless, uh, uh, Gandhi does say that it is a satanic civilization, and he uses some very nasty language to describe British institutions. He refers to parliament as a sterile woman or prostitute. Uh, There's certainly some uh, very old-fashioned language here when it comes to women. Uh, If you read the autobiography, Gandhi admits to having beaten his wife many times uh, before he realized that that was wrong and decided not to do it anymore. Uh, there, there are stories of Gandhi deliberately sleeping uh, in a bed with uh, naked underage girls to tempt his chastity to see you know, if he is really chaste. Uh, you know, There's some pretty wild stuff in, in Gandhi's life. Uh, and what Gandhi says is that he is a very ordinary person. He's not special he isn't any better at pursuing truth than any of the rest of us and he makes mistakes just like we do so in the autobiography he experiments with truth and many of the experiments fail at one point he tries eating meat and realizes it's a disaster and not something he should do uh, and regrets the fact that he tried it but he tells you about it so that you might learn from his failed experiment with you know hey maybe maybe the meat eaters are right uh, there are a lot of stories of that kind in this text Uh, So the kind of the big upshot of all of this uh, is that I think for Gandhi, we really get into some of the basic fundamental questions about politics because we're really asked, okay, do we think there's truth? And if so, is it accessible enough to enough people for satyagraha to be an effective means of creating political consensus? And. There are lots of different nuanced positions you can take in relation to this question. You can say, well, maybe in cases where it's really obvious Satyagraha works, but we couldn't build a whole society around it. I think a lot of people who have a kind of ordinary level of sympathy for Gandhi have a view like this, that, yeah, in the case of colonialism, Satyagraha works, because that's really obviously wrong. But you couldn't you know, live in a liberal society and, and do everything with Satyagraha. There's too much reasonable disagreement to make decisions with satyagraha yeah uh, you know, then there are people who really like what gandhi has to say and do think something like satyagraha would work and i think if you dig into a lot of anarchist political theory there is often something like satyagraha at operating in those theories there's some kind of mechanism by which we're supposed to easily come to agreement relatively easily without the need for hard coercion that is doing a lot of work in a lot of anarchist political thought that said, some anarchists do uh, give a greater role for violence than Gandhi does. It's not as if uh, all anarchists are, are peace-loving. There are you know, bomb-throwing anarchists. Um, but generally, the anarchist's end goal, at least, is a society in which you have some level of, of spontaneous cooperation without the need for coercive force. And that seems to require something like Satyagraha, even if it's not Satyagraha. At the very least, it seems to require some of the claims that gandhi makes about the accessibility of moral truth because if it really is the case that say there is no moral truth or moral truth is impossible for us to converge on uh, then we're going to really struggle to come together and make collective decisions without coercion right Uh, and conversely if it were really obvious what's true and really obvious what's good then we could use coercion because we would be confident that we were coercing in the name of the right cause so to get rid of coercion you need this very very specific kind of position That is very much in between these two other positions, Uh, you know, to, to give an example of someone that I think in some ways is similar to Gandhi, but not quite the same. You know, Plato thinks that truth is kind of translucent. Plato thinks that, um, you know, we are able to pursue truth or pursue the good, but not consistently and not in a way where we get all of it all at once. Right. But for Plato, some of us are more able to get access to it than others, And some people are really, really going to struggle to get access to it. And therefore, Plato argues that you do need a city in which there is rule, in which some set of political rulers rules the people who can't rule themselves. For Gandhi, everybody is, at least in principle, capable of ruling themselves, capable of doing Swaraj, right? And in this way, Gandhi is uh, a little bit more like uh, Plotinus, I think, in, in terms of You know, emphasizing the possibility of this as a path, which in theory is open to everybody with a soul. Right. But when you actually teach Gandhi to uh, students or you have students read Gandhi, very few students get convinced by this work, even though if you were to ask students, you know, what do they think about politics? What kind of society would they like to have? Many would describe something that in many ways is similar to what Gandhi says in terms of a society with less coercion, more freedom, no violence. Uh, but when you start to get into what does that require and what beliefs do you have to have about politics and about the universe to make it work, it starts to get harder. Nevertheless, I find that there, there is this challenge from Gandhi to the way that we make decisions is really helpful to think about and think through. Because at minimum it helps you understand why we do things the way we do do them, and insofar as it still has a, a power of persuasion and I do think that a lot of the things Gandhi says are persuasive uh, it can cause us to question some of the things that we take for granted in the way that we structure modern society uh, you know this idea that of course we want to you know, uh, uh, we want the best possible medical science because we we want to make sure nobody dies. well for Gandhi, Preventing death is not very important because everybody's going to die. Death is not the object for the state. You know, it's not, you know, the fear of death is not what the state ought to be concerned with at all for Gandhi. So Gandhi, in many ways, has a kind of uh, trivializing attitude to medical science. He's very dismissive of, of doctors. Uh, he argues that doctors often, because they treat people's symptoms, uh, hide from them the you know, negative consequences of their lifestyles or of the way that they relate to society or of their purchases. Similarly, he argues that lawyers foster conflict by suggesting to people that they have legal cases when otherwise people might let things go or might uh, make their argument in a more collaborative or cooperative kind of way. They might show the person they're disagreeing the force of the truth with Satyagraha, but instead, because of how our society is structured, they hire a lawyer and then the lawyer makes the fight. More acrimonious and nastier to try to ream as much money out of the person, ring as much money out of the person as possible, or get the maximum prison sentence for the person, right? It becomes a very different kind of game. His critique of parliament is very focused on if you're in parliament, you're worried about losing your seat. You're making your decisions based on fear instead of love, uh, instead of love of the truth, Right, so when you vote, it's because you don't want to be disciplined by the party whip, or you don't want to be disciplined by the party leader, or you think that you'll lose an election if you don't vote this way. You know, why is it that we, uh, you know, can't consider uh, degrowth or? Uh, uh, Economic uh, policies that involve shrinking the size of the economy or GDP or disrupting supply chains. It's a fear on the part of the politicians that uh, if they were to do those kinds of things, they would lose. And, you know, it, that fear is often well founded. They would lose. And the system doesn't reward people who uh, subordinate their fear to their beliefs about what's true or about what's good. To be a successful politician in a Western state, you often do have to focus on fear. That's why there are so many fearful politicians, because it is a winning strategy for getting elected, right? So I think there's some powerful things in this, and I think there's a lot of room in this to play around. Uh, another thing, for instance, Gandhi makes an argument that while the Varna system, if you think back to the Artha Shastra episode, we discussed the Varnas, the, the different castes in ancient India, that the Varna system is a good system, but not when the different Varnas are given status status. More status than one another. So he argues it ossifies into a system of caste when we start to say that the Brahmin are better than the other castes, or that the untouchables are worse than the other castes, or that the ascetic is better than the householder. When we start to attach status to these roles that are for, for Gandhi, just part of the, part of the well-ordered society, part of the universe, and we don't treat all of these people as equal or as capable of thinking for themselves about what's true and experimenting with truth on it on their own terms if we say that only the ascetics can do it or we say only the brahmin can do it and that other people are not capable of thinking about what's true then we are not really following religion properly as far as he's concerned and gandhi does not simply or straightforwardly say that ancient indian society was good he's he's critical of of that aspect he's also for instance Uh, Very critical of the fact that when the Europeans showed up, the Indians bought the goods that the Europeans were offering, that the Indians were attracted to the goods. Uh, And in in this way, he suggests that there was some kind of spiritual problem in India, which facilitated the process of colonialism. The desire for this increase in in living standard uh, caused them to uh, turn away from uh, what Gandhi considers to be true in favor of these other values. So that's, I think, how I'm going to start us up here. Uh, I now want to turn to Alex, who spent a lot of time on Gandhi. He did a lot of work this week. He, he looked at lots of different things. I I thought it was interesting, some of the stuff that he wrote up for me before we, we got on the air. So I want to hear what he thinks. What do you think about Gandhi, Alex?
1: Just what you said at the end there. Maybe it's not the right word to say that they don't give more status to higher, higher costs because say a Brahmin, the idea is that they give everything and expect nothing back. And then the opposite end, an agriculturalist gives, but also expects a lot of protection back. So that's why kings bow down to Brahmins or people like Gandhi. So that is a kind of status, or is it just a benefit maybe?
0: Yeah. So some people will accuse Gandhi of hypocrisy and say, well, Gandhi kind of hid behind the status accorded to ascetics. He, you know, lived on this ashram, and he invited people from all sorts of different uh, religious backgrounds to live on the ashram to suggest that people from every religion could be part of his project. He was especially keen to get Westerners to come and live on the ashram because that showed that even the Westerner has on some level a sense for the values that he's espousing. Uh, and at the back of his barrage, you find testimonials from Westerners about how this is really a great set of ideas. A lot of the testimonials come from Europeans. Because that shows, ah, look, if even the European can be made to see it, then maybe there's something here. Uh, yeah, Gandhi certainly used a lot of this for political gain, while at the same time criticizing the status hierarchy, which he leveraged in his politics. And so some criticisms of Gandhi suggest that he wasn't tough enough on the caste system, or that he... Uh, Lean too much on the kind of status that he enjoyed. Uh, of course, you know, the, the issue there is, is how else is Satyagraha meant to work except through moral authority? And Gandhi suggests that he is a very ordinary person and anyone can do Satyagraha. That is you know, the controversial claim. Can anyone do Satyagraha? Can anyone respond to it? Are we really dealing with values that are that accessible? It is weird for someone who's so religious, who says that religion can act as like the ultimate
1: check on politics, or he's even saying that religion is political, it's the best form of politics, to then say that the whole world is is not fallen, or no, it, 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 to then dream that it could not be fallen one day, that, you know, a significant percentage of people could actually dream of actually controlling their senses, you know?
0: Yeah. It, once this is all done, you know, for Gandhi, once India has achieved home rule through Satyagraha, then India as a state is meant to do Satyagraha with other countries. And the way that India operates is meant to be this kind of example. So it's then meant to scale up even further, and eventually even the Westerner is meant to be brought in. And that doesn't mean he's saying there's no military
1: and that they're just cowards, because if you're doing it out of cowardice, as for example, Russia wants to invade you when Britain leaves. And if you submit out of cowardice, rather than being brave and actually trying to fight them and then maybe killing yourself, then that's not Satyagraha.
0: You're supposed to actually still put up a fight. So there's always yeah. but a, a nonviolent fight. You know, sometimes the Brits would make these arguments, you know, what are you going to do if the Japanese come or if the Russians come? Well, you know, Gandhi's answer to that is Satyagraha, because if you do Satyagraha, eventually, you uh, you know, and you refuse to cooperate with any of the things that they tell you to do that you think are wrong, they're going to find that the the country is ungovernable. And at least in principle, you can see how this would really be true. If it was really true that any time the government told people to do something that they felt was wrong, they just didn't do it. And they allowed the government to jail them, shoot them, do whatever it is that the government wants to do to try to coerce them. And they had no fear of death because they had totalizing individual swaraj. You can see how it would work. It would work if all of those things lined up. If all of the premises of this argument hold, it's valid. But the premises are difficult to accept. It has to really be the case that people can uh, just let themselves be imprisoned or killed in these situations at scale That there is some kind of training, Swaraj self rule training, that you can give people to prepare them for satyagraha that will make them reliable satyagrahis. And then it's got to be the case that the satyagraha activity has the effect on the audience that it's intended to have, which is based on these claims about the accessibility of truth. But because he kind of equates the individual with the state and
1: saying how, well, he still uses the mechanics of fear just calls it shame, maybe. And people have always kind of, say for example, they have a traumatic experience and then they need to change their ways or something like that. That's always kind of been uh, a phenomenon in individuals. And then he looks at villages who had a tyrant and then they protested by leaving his kingdom completely. And then he's got no one to govern. So then he has to turn back. So maybe that force of shame, if you can always see it in your experience, is something that could be scaled up and down from the
0: individual to the state. Yeah, and there's a, a kind of special use of shame here. Shame is not just that other people look down on what you're doing and you are afraid of other people's opinions. Shame is this genuine religious sense that you've done something wrong. Right? So it's, it's to do with truth, with this kind of feeling that you've in some way deviated from truth. Rather than being worried about other people's opinions, because for Gandhi, if you're afraid of what other people will think, that is not motivation uh, by truth. So when we're talking about what's shameful or what's admirable, we're not talking about opinion for Gandhi. Uh, Similarly, in Plato's uh, Gorgias, there is a, a distinction made between what is really admirable and what people think is admirable or what people's opinions are. Gandhi makes a similar kind of distinction there.
1: Maybe it's not so much a political question, but I don't know how we can separate. Sorry, what other people think from, uh, like, say that truth is completely
0: independent of honor, things like that. A bit like Plato in a way. Well, truth is is completely independent of status, but Gandhi and Plato want to suggest that honor, in some way, is linked to what's good. That what is really honorable is what's good, even if in your society what is honored. Is not what's really honorable. Is it also because it's like a bridge between the desire territory and then the truth territory, which are completely... Yeah, it's it's a kind of means of getting people on board who might otherwise have a hard time fully uh, linking into this. And for Plato, that's more important than for Gandhi, because for Gandhi, everybody has some level of internal ability to be motivated by the truth. But for Plato, there are different types of souls with different levels of ability to pay attention to what's true or care about what's true. It's it's like if you completely, it's almost impossible to prove it wrong because
1: you're never causing any collateral damage to other people. So even if others like like or dislike it, you can say it's completely my duty. It's not I'm not doing this on desire or like or dislike. And then if someone you know wants to abuse that and say, okay, I'm just using the concept of duty to force you into things you don't like. Well, then if they get angry when they don't when you don't comply with them. Then they're acting out of like and dislike, and there you go you've got them, so it's like the ultimate accountability mechanism, maybe just this suicide policy where you die for your own conscience in an anarchist way yeah
0: well, yeah, that is the, the the tricky thing here is if it's not happening, if people aren't doing this, then it's for Gandhi it's because you have not yet instilled the swaraj, the religious teaching in enough people. there are events that can happen that can kick it off you know Gandhi talks about. Uh, in bengal in 1905 the british administration decided to partition bengal over the objections of the people who live there on the basis of religion and many many people in bengal and around india were furious with the british government for partitioning bengal in this way and the fact that britain did this kicked off a lot of spiritual exploration some of the people who got Interested in finding a, an Indian way of doing things distinct and separate from the British way, became uh, too too extreme, or they became moderates who wanted to institute a kind of Indian uh, form of British government. What uh, what Gandhi calls the tiger's nature without the tiger. Uh, but some of them then uh, got interested in things like Satyagraha and Gandhi's movement. So for Gandhi, those objective situations in which the Government does something that strikes people as obviously morally wrong, can be catalyzing. But of course, they're catalyzing not just for the Satyagrahis, but also for extremists or for reformists who are not interested in achieving the same ultimate ends. Gandhi was willing to ally with those groups, provided that those groups were not indulging in violent means. So Gandhi was, able, was willing to cooperate with other factions in India. Uh, even though Gandhi's position for what the end state should be was very different from many of the other Indian independence leaders. And of course, the government that India eventually gets is a parliamentary government that's very similar to, in many respects, the kind of government that you see in a Western European country, structurally, institutionally. It's a democracy. It's representative democracy. It's focused very much on economic growth. So, yeah, it didn't ultimately go the way that gandhi wanted it to go now some people will look at that and go well see that's proof that it didn't work or that's proof uh but you know you could say and people who are very committed to gandhi's teachings would say well in india there could be a yet another spiritual revival and people in india could refuse to cooperate with the existing Government on the basis that it's too much like the British regime. Uh, and you can read Gandhi for that purpose as a kind of radicalizing figure for continuing to oppose uh, neo colonial administrations that are still embedded within you know, Western imperial power dynamics. But of course, in point of, of uh, fact, we don't see this in India. India does have a conventional representative liberal democracy.
1: You know, even though there is that kind of cutoff between the religious. And service side and then of life, and then the material kind of enjoyment, comfort side of life. It's not like the revolution, whatever you want to call it, would be purely, you know, religious or faith or worship. It's very economic because Bengal, they didn't follow through and then actually decentralize their production. But if they maybe stopped buying from mills in Bombay, which was still using industrial techniques and started to bring back traditional village production, and like you said, so that people can't move so quickly and spread kind of yeah evil ideas and evil intentions, that they can only use their limbs to basically affect a few people in their life, then the way people make money on a daily basis, not just when they're worshipping or feeling traumatized from some kind of spiritual horrible thing, that could bring people to a different state.
0: Yeah. There's, you know, Swadeshi is very important, the self-reliance. Uh, economic self-reliance for Gandhi, because if you are continuing to import luxury goods, then you're going to continue to be dependent on luxuries and on the machines that produce them. And you're going to orient the society around maintaining machines and around coming up with the money to pay for the luxury goods. And those imperatives are going to cause you to make a society which is indistinguishable from the Western society, right? If you're trying to get you know, a greater production of stuff, then you're going to follow the Western states down this road into in capitalism and into industrialization. So in this respect, Gandhi is, is not just a critic of, say, capitalism, but a critic of modernity, of industrialization in a totalizing way. And I think if you're if you're going to make an argument for you know, degrowth, you've got to bear in mind that you know, once you're committed to luxury goods... Once you're committed to machines, there's a logic that takes off. And it's not just the logic of capitalism. It's a logic of industrialization, a logic of machine maintenance. And so for Gandhi, you not only have to reject economic growth, you have to reject the entire system That gives you incentives to pursue economic growth, a system based around industrialization, based around this idea that living standards are important, that taking care of the body is important. Uh, For him, you have to reject all of these things. And so Gandhi takes very seriously the implications of of degrowth uh, in a way that a lot of people who make these kinds of arguments, but uh, think you can do it through parliamentary means or uh, think that it's compatible with, you know, uh, rising standards of education or rising standards of health care uh, you know, they don't necessarily take this very seriously. Gandhi says that you know, literacy itself is not important that the Indian villager who can't read uh, has just as much ability to pursue what's true and and what's good as someone who's literate that there's no difference in the sense for moral truth between the illiterate and the literate so education is not necessary indeed for gandhi being able to get on a train go other places meet other people this tends to get people confused about what's good and make them want the luxuries and comforts that they see other people in other parts of the world enjoying so if you don't have access to trains or education for gandhi in many ways you're more likely to be better off a lot of uh, third world marxism uh, kind of uh, uh, anti-anti-urbanism or anti-industrial uh, post colonial thought is similar in this regard in this focus on you know, actually the the peasant villager is living uh, you know the pre capitalist life without these imperatives and is in some ways living a better life than the educated uh, uh, product of liberal industrial society so some elements of that are in Gandhi's work as well, of course, unlike, say, the Khmer Rouge, which made the argument for liquidating the urban areas as a way of wiping out those ways of life. For Gandhi, you can get there just by going to an ashram, living in an ashram, showing people that it works and allowing the moral force of it to persuade them. But that doesn't mean you wouldn't also change the whole economy and try and
1: stop people living in huge cities and maybe not get rid of intellectual education completely, but see it as like an afterthought that brings grace and maybe a little bit of. Comfort
0: after the the moral sense has been taught. Well, you'd you'd show them right with satyagraha, okay. and but sometimes they might be persuaded, and sometimes not. But you won't use violence to force the economy to change. What you will do is, you know, you, you will refuse to buy the colonizer's cloth and you'll pile up the colonizer's cloth and set it on fire so everyone can see it and everyone can participate in throwing the colonizer's cloth into the fire. And the newspapers can talk about how they threw the colonizer's cloth into the fire and it was, you know, this huge inferno and what a what a beautiful thing. And people will hear about it and they'll go, maybe I shouldn't buy the colonizer's cloth. yeah. So there's a symbolic kind of politics in this. And you see... Aspects of this in liberal symbolic politics, where oftentimes people think a gesture will have moral force, even without any kind of force to back it up. Often, if those people dig into the premises of of an argument like Gandhi's, they'll find much to disagree with. They'll go, "No, I don't think that the truth is, you know, obvious uh, to everyone or or translucent." You know, many of these people have have a view that truth is is much less. Uh, tractable than that, much harder to find, much less accept- as accessible, or they think there is no such thing as objective moral truth. If you don't think that there's objective moral truth, why would you think this symbolic politics would have moral force? But a lot of postmodern liberals will say, oh, there's no such thing as objective moral truth, but symbolic moral demonstrations have moral force. For Gandhi, it's very clear that for them to have moral force, it has to be the case that they're tapping into some sense for morality that's in people. And if that sense isn't there, the gesture doesn't work. Say, for example, you have the example of
1: people turning vegan nowadays, and then all the restaurants start serving vegan food, and then the supply chain start to change slowly through this kind of ethical consumerism. What about those people doesn't have um, the aiming at the truth or the good or god
0: that gandhi wants religious people to have like well i think for gandhi you know that in and of itself might be a great example of of satyagraha i think for him the question would be well why isn't that being applied in other areas of life why is that being selectively applied to just the conception of of animals yeah gandhi would of course argue for vegetarianism he was a vegetarian for almost all of his life um but you know for Gandhi it would be well why stop there you know why are you getting on a train why are you organizing your life around trying to live comfortably why don't you embrace a life of poverty you know for Gandhi you're only supposed to participate in the work that's associated with your varna for a relatively small portion of the day so that you can spend the rest of your time thinking about what's true and so even the peasant farmer who has no uh, you know who's illiterate will only spend a certain amount of their time on work, and the rest of their time they can spend on spiritual cultivation. And this is why, for Gandhi, everyone is meant to be able to do spiritual cultivation, because no one is meant to spend more than a handful of hours a day working, because there's no reason to work all day, because you're not trying to produce a competitive military or a competitive economy. Because you don't care if your economy is not competitive. Because you're not trying to get luxuries. You're not trying to avoid death. You're not concerned if some other country comes and invades you. You will just not cooperate with them if they do that. Until they leave and get frustrated. So, you know, for for those reasons, you know, it's remarkable just the consistency of this argument. And just how seriously it takes all of its implications. And what I wish, you know, more arguments of this kind that argue for this kind of political praxis would lay out and take seriously everything that's implied by it. Because it involves making these these claims that are very difficult to to buy at scale. But Gandhi nonetheless will make them. He bites these bullets. He says, no, it really is the case that everybody, everybody has a sense for what's true. And if we appeal to it, because these, these things are really true, because there's some uh, a spiritual aspect to this, you can get people to, to cooperate. It's uh, the, the belief that he has in people, in spite of the fact that all around him he sees you know, what he considers a satanic civilization in which people are indulging their desires. This underlying belief that he nonetheless has that there is a truth that you can get people to see through satyagraha is uh, astounding. His commitment to that and confidence in it is, is remarkable. And that's why I think he's just one of the most interesting political theorists, standing aside you know, and leaving apart whether you agree or disagree with any of the core claims. But why does it, if you say you just do your daily
1: activity with your vana and then you've got free time to pursue the good, why does that sense restraint that comes with having to do your job and not follow desires, why does that increase creativity or kind of expand? Because to a Western point of view, it looks like a lot of things which Gandhi praises, like public utilities even, and good sanitation, and creative destruction, it's called, in the
0: economy, that comes from following your desires to an extent, not policing them. That's creative. Well, I think for Gandhi, as soon as any of that stuff involves putting the desires ahead of the truth, at that point... Something's gone wrong. You know, you can provide for some level of public utility. You can build stuff. It's not as if you have to live uh, you know, completely uh, without any comforts. But those comforts have to be consistent with what you think is true, consistent with what you think is compatible with living truthfully. You know, this is the, the thing about experimenting with truth. The way that Gandhi thinks about truth, I, I like to compare it to a kid's drawing of a son. You know, a circle with lines radiating out, you know, a very simple drawing, right? All of the religions for Gandhi are oriented toward the religion underlying all religions. All of the rays of the drawing come into and converge upon the circle, right? And the circle is truth, and the different religions are paths, and the different religions approach the truth from different directions and are better or worse at getting at it in different circumstances and in different ways. So there's scope in this theory to experiment and to try different things and to question particular teachings. Nothing is going to be imposed on you through coercion. So there's plenty of room on this schema to go, well, what if eating meat is, is the right thing to do? Uh, if you think that, you can go and, and hunt and, and kill an animal, but nobody should help you for Gandhi. You know, If you ask someone to, to do it for you, to be a butcher, you know, people should say no to you. And maybe if enough people tell you, no, I would never do that. Why would you ask me to do such a thing? You'll think twice about it. <laughs> it's like the denial right? comes before. Yeah. But even if, even if they do help you and you are able to get meat and you are able to eat it, maybe as you eat it, you'll start to think, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. You'll go, well, maybe this is a mistake. Maybe I feel bad about what I'm doing. That's the experimenting, the trying different ways of living, the seeing if they work. That uh, that's the empiricism, the experimental quality to this. Uh, and the reason that Gandhi has this experimental attitude is that he doesn't think the truth is so transparent that you can impose it. And that's what creates the space for this pluralism in this thinking. One of the things I find really interesting about this is that you have pluralism on this view. There's plenty of scope for experimenting, for trying out different ways of living, different ways of thinking about what's true. But it's not based on liberalism. It's not based on the idea that you know everybody has to be uh, thought of as uh, free or equal in some liberal political sense. It's just uh, on the on the basis that truth itself is something that we are not able to access uh, you know straightforwardly. It's something we have to play with and think about and tarry with to get glimpses of so in that respect, it's like the way Plato thinks about truth but whereas plato thinks about the good as as something that many people are not able to access and therefore something you have to 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 impose to sometimes through politics uh, for gandhi it's always available to people and it's always something that you can get across through satyagraha so you never have to in, to create the kinds of political institutions that are visible in Uh, in Platonism or Aristotelianism or uh, indeed, you know, Catholic political theory, medieval political theory. And none of that's necessary for Gandhi. Would a more liberal pluralist say, go for things that you desire rather than saying, no, start with what you don't want morally? Yeah, if you you say, well, anything that somebody... Prefers within reason. Oftentimes, liberal pluralism works in the way that, say, Rawlsian pluralism works. So, for Rawls, there's a uh, reasonable pluralism. There's a set of value schemas that are reasonable insofar as they respect the burdens of judgment, respect that it's you know hard to come to agreement, uh, uh and they prioritize liberty. They prioritize giving uh, freedom to others so long as uh, that freedom is compatible with with uh, other people also having it right Uh, those kinds of liberal schemas say well you 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 have to give people the freedom to pursue their aims their preferences their desires uh and those desires aims and preferences are very different they are as a fact very different from one another and therefore because there's no way of, of adjudicating within at least the bounds of reasonable disagreement which preferences are to be preferred uh you have to allow people to pursue lots of and lots of different, say, comprehensive doctrines or ways of life. For Gandhi, it's not that um, our desires all have to be uh, indulged or allowed. It's that even if we are aiming at some kind of notion of truth or good that's more fixed. Uh, we ourselves are going to be continually evolving in what we think. It's not as if we can just adopt a comprehensive doctrine uh, and try to impose it. You know, for On a Rawlsian schema, you have lots of different people with lots of different comprehensive doctrines, all of which could be imposed, but they decide not to impose their comprehensive doctrines because they uh, are reasonable and respect the burdens of judgment. For Gandhi, it's not that there are lots of different comprehensive doctrines that you could impose. It's that we are not sure enough about truth to even impose comprehensive doctrine. We are continuing to develop what we think is true and experimenting with it all the time. So we never get to the point of having a comprehensive doctrine, a particular view of the truth that can straightforwardly be imposed. Uh, but this this uh you know, so the pluralism comes out of the nature of truth itself and this tarrying relationship that we have with it, rather than uh, some fact of disagreement in and of itself. It's not the fact that we disagree about what's true. For Gandhi, we are all drawn to the same ultimate source of value. So for Gandhi, we all are together with truth. But because of these, there, there are these different rays, there are these different paths, which shed light on different aspects. And so there's scope for tarrying with and trying out these different paths and these different approaches, right? So the pluralism comes from the different ways in which we engage with the truth rather than different views about what's valuable, altogether different views that you uh, are then having to balance through a political system that otherwise would be taken over by one of them at the expense of the rest. And yet, even though Gandhi thinks that truth is not straightforwardly uh, something that you can grab, he still thinks satyagraha works. You know, Plato thinks that truth is difficult to get at, but therefore you need highly trained philosophers to go after it, and the other classes will have to be ruled by those philosophers because they won't be able to get it. Gandhi says, well, truth is hard to get at, but everyone can experiment. But there is
1: that elitist strand. I mean, at the beginning of Hinswaraj, he talks about a parliament which is uh, true to the original intention of the British people, which was... Let's create a body of experts who are not moved by, say, desire for a bigger salary, say, desire for party over country, and that you need to be disinterested in elite, this very kind of old-fashioned argument
0: for, you know, technocracy, I don't know. Right, but of course, for Gandhi, that didn't work out, and it doesn't work out because those uh, elites are not ultimately able to consistently be right about what's true. And because they're not able to ultimately consistently be right about what's true, you're going to have occasions where you need the population to do satyagraha when the elites get it wrong, right? But in the British system, the elites are treated as superior and given a kind of permanent status as superior, right? Once you give them the permanent status as superior, you know then there's no scope for disobeying them, right? In the same way, if you ossify the Varna system and say that the Brahmin or the ascetic is superior or the king is superior to the untouchable or to the agriculturalist, then there's no scope for resisting what you're told to do. But for Gandhi, you're supposed to always have this right of resistance on the basis of what you think is true. Uh, I do think it's a lot more individualistic than, say, classical Greek Platonism, uh, in part because Gandhi comes from a much later period in which Western ideas about the individual are... Part of the discussion. And so there's a lot more emphasis on the individual in Gandhi's work. Um, but, uh, well, and that's, I think, part of what explains how Gandhi's view differs from, say, the view expressed in the Arthashastra. The view expressed in the Arthashastra, you know, if anything, it kind of treats the uh, ascetic as a bit of a nuisance to the king or as a danger to the king insofar as someone who's disguised as an ascetic. Uh, A wandering ascetic can be uh, a nefarious agent of another state, you know, in that text, which is a much more straightforward political text than Gandhi's, you know, it takes the point of view of the state much more straightforwardly. Uh, You know, these these, uh, religious mechanics are necessary for political legitimacy and to find something to do with the people who otherwise don't fit into the society, but they are not to be taken as the basis of the politics, I guess because in Cortila's time, he actually saw lots of these ascetics becoming violent. So. Yeah, and, and and there can be. yeah. You know, I shouldn't say that in the Arthashastra, religion is not the basis of the politics. Religion is the basis of the politics, but the higher order religious figures do not have political authority because the text is written from the point of view of the king. The king is supposed to structure society on the basis of what Hindu religious teaching suggests, but the king is meant to rule and is not to just defer to ascetics because so often the ascetics will be tricksters or not authentically religious or what have you. If the king is gullible and just does whatever a wandering ascetic says, uh, if the king takes the religion too seriously and, and doesn't view it as a political tool, but subordinates himself politically to religious figures... You know, that causes trouble in the Arthashastra. In uh, you know this text, the king is not superior to anybody. You know the political leader for for Gandhi is not superior to anybody. Nor is the religious person. You know the, the ascetic, even the that illiterate farmer is meant to be just as good on this account, just as capable of tracking what's true and what's good. Uh, yeah, at points, I, I want to say this because we're probably, yeah, we're at about an hour and we're probably going to have to wrap up soon. At points in our earlier you know, discussion in your paper, and we talked a little bit about a couple points of comparison that I think are interesting and worth mentioning before we close up. So one, is you said, is is Gandhi a little bit like a Stoic? The Stoics, of course, think that everybody is capable of... Ruling themselves through reason, regardless of the circumstances, even if you're in a society that is very, very bad, uh, you can cope with it through Stoic praxis, according to the Stoics. Uh, And the critics of Stoicism, of course, regard this as kind of hubristic to think that you don't need the society to already be well-ordered. For this to happen i think this criticism does in some ways apply to gandhi because he starts with individual swaraj you need to have individual swaraj before you can do satyagraha and then satyagraha will get you home rule and then home rule is supposed to you know, be a, a whole society that's based around satyagraha well how do you get very large numbers of people who learn individual swaraj in a society governed by the satanic civilization it seems unlikely that you'd get very large numbers of them that way and when you do have these catalyzing instances like the Bengal partition, it doesn't just create satyagrahis, it also creates moderates and extremists that Gandhi disagrees with. Right. So I think that is a, an interesting criticism, uh, that some of the critiques that apply to Stoicism potentially also apply to this. Also, the, the Stoic idea that we just kind of have a natural grasp for what's true or what's good, uh, that everybody has this, you know, it's similar. Similar. I'm not going to say it's identical or that Gandhi's influenced by that, but similar. Uh, Another point of comparison uh, that that you made was to natural law theory. And I think, again, this kind of emphasizes natural law theory also in some ways is, is influenced by Stoicism. It comes out of this idea that we have this natural predilection for truth, this natural orientation toward value. right? And so you can see when something is out of step with nature because... People won't be able to go along with it. You know, certain kinds of natural law views go, well, it's obvious that this is against nature because it's a law that can't be followed. You know, in and, and the same way, if satyagraha happens at scale, then whatever the ruler is doing is so out of step with what people think is good or think is true that it can't command obedience, right? So I, I do think there are some similarities there. I'm not going to say Gandhi is a natural law theorist or Gandhi is a stoic. But there are some similarities there, and some of the criticisms that people have applied to natural law theory and Stoicism can be applied to this, and indeed to lots of other anarchist theories that work with similar premises, whether stated or unstated, explicit or implicit. Any other questions before we wrap up? Um, You kind of add
1: a couple of comparisons. Maybe a third one is just with Marx. You could say, obviously not Marxism, because they want to accelerate production, but You know, at the end of the day, if they're desiring more leisure time, maybe even more simplicity, it could just be that, you know, capitalism evolving delivers more simplicity and a more kind of um, earthy way of life. Yeah. Where creative time is, you know, is available. Yeah.
0: A lot of Marxists were very critical. Uh, Indian Marxists were very critical of Gandhi at the time because they viewed Gandhi as a reactionary primitivist. Um, Who? Yeah. And you can see why. Uh, Yeah. At the same time, are there socialists who sympathize with what Gandhi's doing? Yes. Are those socialist Marxists? Generally, no. They're generally non-Marxist socialists of the more utopian or kind of anarcho-socialist variety. Uh, but you know, are there, you know, is, is it possible that you could imagine a society that uh, where these things might come together? I think it's an interesting question. You know, a while back, I wrote on, on my blog, BenjaminStudebaker.com, uh, a blog post called The Parable of the Spooky Forest, in which Gandhi and Marx are in a car and they're driving through a spooky forest. And Gandhi doesn't think that they should ever have come to this spooky forest and they should turn back and they should go back the way they came. And the forest is just the wrong place to be. And Marx is determined that if they go through the forest, they're going to find something better at the end, that the forest you know, leads somewhere. Uh, and Marx is driving the car and Gandhi kind of in the car against his will. Right. So Gandhi, to, to kind of protest against what Marx is doing, just starts refusing to talk to him for long parts of the drive. And you're making a a point to, to show that he doesn't like where they're going or where Marx is, is making him go. Anyway, they come to a bridge. And, uh, the bridge is a toll bridge. It's, it's run by a troll. And the, the troll says, ah, yes, if you want to cross my troll toll bridge, answer me these questions three. You know, first question, do you have five dollars? You know, he demands five dollars, and, and Marx gives the troll five dollars, and, and the troll you know, rubs it all over his body, all hideously and grotesquely, and goes, oh, that's wonderful. Yes, yes. Uh, second question, do you have five more dollars? And, and Marx hands him another five dollars, and the troll rubs the money all over his body, and it's, it's just awful. I don't even want to narrate it. It's, it's so, so unpleasant. Uh, and then the troll says, all right, third, third question, do you have five more dollars? And, Marx, who never had a ton of money, checks his pockets and can't find uh, any money. And he turns to Gandhi and uh, goes, Gandhi, do you have five dollars? And Gandhi says, yeah, but I'm not giving it to you because I don't believe we should cross this bridge. Right. So the the troll goes, they're refusing to pay the troll toll. So he calls the police and the police show up and the police uh, drag Gandhi out of the car to make him pay the toll. and, And Gandhi continues to refuse to pay. And the police officers start beating him up and beating him up and beating him up. And he's bloodied and his body is. is is being broken and and it's an incredibly sad and and, and terrifying and and horrible thing to to witness. And Marx watches this happen and he sympathizes with Gandhi. So he takes a hardcover copy of Das Kapital and beats the police officer to death with it. Uh, And then Picks up Gandhi, carries him into the car, steps on the gas, runs over the troll, runs over the bridge. The bridge, you know, the troll never invested that money in maintaining the bridge. He always wasted it on on luxuries. So the bridge collapses behind them as they drive across the bridge. Now they can't go back. Uh, and Gandhi's just mad. He's just mad at Marx for having crossed that bridge uh, and for having run over that person and and having used violence to prevent his death because you know, the whole point of the Satyagraha is that now, if if they kill you, they kill you. If if the police officer wants to beat you to death because you won't pay a troll five dollars, then you know other people should see that and go. Really, is this the kind of society we want to live in? Uh, but Marx interrupted that with his violence, and because he did that, you know he soiled everything. Now the whole car ride is just a, a complete disaster, and there's no way it can go well as far as Gandhi's concerned. So you know they, they they keep driving because Marx is still driving the car and they you know it gets dark and they, they come upon this lake and this lake has you know little lights out little lights uh, that are visible in the lake and, and Gandhi says just let me get out of this car I don't want to travel around with you anymore I want to stop at this lake so they stop at the lake and and a voice uh, drifts across the lake and it says Gandhi look at the lights come out and touch the lights Become one with the lights, Gandhi. Yeah. You know, and, and Gandhi is so tired of, of traveling with Marx. He thinks Marx is a murderer. So he goes, you know, maybe I will. Maybe I'm going to touch those lights. And Marx goes, I wouldn't go near those lights. They sound you know, very creepy, Gandhi. I wouldn't go near them. Yeah. You know, but, but Gandhi does. He reaches out and, and touches the lights and a hand reaches out of the lake and pulls Gandhi in. He's sucked under the water, sucked under the water. And Marx is, is terrified. So he gets in his, his car and he just drives away. He doesn't try to help. He just drives and drives and drives until he, it gets very late. and It gets very dark and he gets very tired and he pulls off to the side of the road and he goes to sleep. And he has a dream while he's sleeping about you know, Narendra Modi and Hillary Clinton dancing, dancing with billionaires, waving their smartphones with their screens all lit up under the sea. You now, he has a dream about this and then he's shaken awake by... Uh, you know, a man with a thick Brooklyn accent who goes, "Mr. Marx, Mr. Marx, are you okay?" Uh, you know, and and Marx goes, "I'm trying to get out of this forest. It's 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 just a disaster. I, I've lost Gandhi. Everything's going going horribly wrong." And and the the man with the thick Brooklyn accent goes, "Mr. Marx, I think I may know a way out, but I I have to warn you ahead. The forest becomes a desert. The climate changes, and it gets very difficult to 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 go anywhere and do anything." You know, so the man with the thick Brooklyn accent and and marx head off together into the desert and then you know you, you can say at the end of the story well choose your own ending you know, do they get through the desert uh, should they have gone back to begin with if, if you know if they'd listened to gandhi and gone back would things have worked out uh, or you know was was the voice right should should they have just gone to party under the sea and stay in the forest forever uh, you know, with the with the billionaires and the smartphones Uh, Or or is is this just a doomed enterprise? Is nobody right? And nobody's ever getting out of that forest. You know, once they go in, there's no going back. There's no going forward. There's no staying. We're just all doomed in there. You know, that is kind of my metaphor for modernity. Uh, And uh, I I used to like telling that story to students in in first year uh, Gandhi classes. I always thought it was a fun one to tell. Uh, Anyway, it's written up on my blog if you want to read it. Uh, I've, I've kind of paraphrased it. I've probably gone on too long telling it. So we'll wrap it up there for today. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.